Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles out, I do encourage you to turn to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. Before we get started, before we jump into our text, let's uh, invite the Spirit of God into our into our time here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege and the honor it is to uh, come and be taught by it. Lord, today as we we think about your Son being King. We pray that our our hearts and our minds would be geared and turned and moved towards you through the power and the work of the Spirit of God. Lord, we pray that as we turn to the book of Revelation, we look at these first these first few verses that we would we would be ready and willing to hear what you would have to teach us about your son Jesus, about your dominion, Lord. We just pray that you would you would speak through me, feeble and broken as I am, for your own glory. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 4 and following. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us, from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know, I was thinking as we were praying there that there's this heavy reality to trying to display for you the magnitude of this statement that Christ is king. Something that that to the best of my ability I will only ever fall short in doing. Today is Christ is King Sunday which in the liturgical calendar is the last day of the year. Uh, Starting 
really at the conclusion of today's service will be Advent, where we begin to anticipate uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, as a baby in a manger who And as we think about the liturgical calendar and, and what I would call our little experiment as we travel through, we, we may be asked a question one more time uh, before we kind of end this little experiment. Um, what's the purpose? Why did we do this? What, what, is, what is the value of the liturgical calendar? And, and the reality is, is that we did not follow a liturgical calendar uh, like any liturgical church would do. We... we uh, we went back to our normal series instead of following through and, and a bunch of different times. And we kind of just hit the, the main high days, the high holy days. But the purpose of the liturgical calendar is to constantly remind us and drive us back to understanding that what we do week in and week out is only ever taking a minute little part of the grand story. And as we go through the liturgical calendar, and as we follow through this, this, this arc, this story, what we're doing is we're mirroring the story of the Bible. It's called the meta-narrative in theological books. The grand story. It's the story that, that defines who we are as believers and followers of Christ. It's the story that starts in Genesis with God's creating all things and ends with God's final completion and reverting back to his good and perfect creation. It's this big overarching story. And, and if you think about it, just think about it just for a second. What we do week in and week out. I think there's like 100, or not 100, 1,198 chapters in the Bible. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure, but it's somewhere in that range. And we, on a, on a, on a big day, like on a day that we study a large passage of Scripture, we... I think the most we've ever done is three. And when we did that, we didn't cover the whole three chapters. Right? So that is such, it's not even a percentage of what we do. And so the liturgical calendar is supposed to, is supposed to constantly remind us this is, this is only a part of the whole. This is only a, a little detail of this grand, massive, important story. The story that starts in God's creating the earth in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God creates the world and everything in it and, and, and we have this, this beautiful reality of heaven and earth dwelling completely together in harmony. In Genesis chapter 2 we read that, that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. Is there anything more beautiful, a more beautiful picture of God's dwelling with his creation in him, walking with him, talking with him. And this is the beautiful picture, and this is why I think when God says, when God finishes creation on day six, before he rests, he looks at all his creation, he looks at man and he says, this is very good. But then we get to Genesis chapter three. And we get to the fall of man. Man reaching out and grabbing the fruit and saying, I want to be God. I want to be like God. So that's what the serpent says to Eve. You will become, you won't die. You will become like God. You will get to make decisions. You will get to be the controller of what is 
good and evil. And so sin enters the world, and what sin does is it permanently drives us away where these two spheres, this this sphere of God's presence, heaven, and, and God's creation, earth, who were once beautifully united, are driven apart. And at the moment that Adam and Eve eat that fruit, that's what happens. There's a complete rending. There's a complete tearing. Complete separation. And it's only through God's gracious gift of a sacrifice to cover that blemish that there's even a part brought back together. In the Old Testament, what what would largely be what we consider during the period of Advent. This is the this is the question that we dwell on. What is God going to do about us? This is the anticipation of the the Messiah that we see at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The descendant of Eve will will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the heel of the descendant. God from the very beginning had always planned and purposed that his, His creation would be redeemed by His own Son. But this is the anticipation that we have, the the, the excitement that we see, the God again and again uh, defining and clarifying and showing us more beautiful pictures of this Son to come, this Messiah, the Christ of the New Testament. As we anticipate the coming of Christ and what we'll jump into really starting next week is this anticipation of Christ. We, we look to the Old Testament and we see David. We see Moses. We see Isaiah proclaiming the one to come who will take the government upon his shoulders, will take the iniquity of man and, and cover it by his blood. But there's this beautiful picture at the incarnation of Jesus. It's a word we don't really use in the Protestant church. The incarnation of Christ. And we'll talk about this a lot over the next couple of weeks. This, this idea that, that God in creation, He creates this world to exist in, in complete harmony with Himself. That heaven and earth, there's no, there's no aspect of heaven and earth that is not completely under God's uh, complete control. That He's... He's he has completely bathed all of it, and then sin happens and drives it apart. And at the incarnation of Christ, what happens? We have this very similar language of Jesus walking and talking with his disciples, and even at times in the cool of the evening. God, through the incarnation of his son, Jesus re-enters his creation brings heaven and earth a little bit closer together. In the Old Testament, we see, we see that there is a little sphere where those two worlds come together in the tabernacle, in the temple, in what's called the holiest of holies. And in the holiest of holies, there's smoke going up because the presence of God is too holy for even earth to contain it. There are times that, that the, the priests, they would go in and they would walk on this holy ground unworthily and they would just simply die. It's a time when David is bringing the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, which is a representation of the presence of God back 
to Jerusalem. And, a, and a, one of the priests, he pre- brings out his hand to touch it, to balance it. And immediately he's put to death because the presence of God is too great to be felt in the broken world. And yet God, in the incarnation of Christ, comes into the world. He brings this reality a little bit closer together. And as we live then from, from Christmas to Easter, we live in this reality of, of the presence of God himself walking amongst man. And heaven and earth seem a little bit closer together. And then we get to what we call Lent in the liturgical calendar. Lent is a time of the year where we really kind of take the focus and put it upon ourselves. And that seems selfish, but the purpose of this is to, is to drive us to repentance. As we look at ourselves and we go, there is nothing about me that is worthy of God's eyes to even begin to look at me. My sins and my failures and my mistakes and my brokenness, they're too great, they're too vast. And yet, it's not the end of the story. The end of the story somehow is not at this point. Jesus goes to a cross. He suffers and he dies under the hands of the people who he created. Because his goodness is it's beyond measure. A lot of times in the Protestant church, then we, we stop there, right? We stop at Easter and we say, that was nice. Easter Sunday comes and goes. And it's exciting. We're happy. We're joyful on that day. And then the next week, go right back into our normal routines. This year we spent time in the Easter season. Easter season, I think, is, is seven weeks long, and we spent time and we dwelt on what does it mean now to be rescued and redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we end that period of time with what's called Ascension Day, and Christ ascends into heaven, and we then begin the age of the church. And after Ascension Day here at Christ Church, we went back to what is called ordinary time in the liturgical calendar where we study the rest of Genesis, we study the rest of Romans. But that period of time between the ascension of Jesus and what we'll study today is the church age. And the church age largely asks one question. What are we to do? Paul writes 13 letters and he says, this is what you do. Actually, in a lot, of, a lot of his letters, he says, this is what you do and this is what you don't do. And we dwell on that. And really, most of church life is, is bathed in the epistles, in the letters that the apostles wrote to the church, trying to explain and to, and to give understanding about what exactly it means to be, to be covered and to be, to be saved, to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I'd like, to, I'd like to pose a thought for you for just one minute. Before we jump into our text this morning, I want you to think about something. The book of Revelation is probably, arguably, 
the most highly talked about book. It's debated. Every single person in this room has an opinion about it. Even if your opinion is, I don't really know, you still have an opinion about it. Pastors and preachers and theologians, everybody writes books about it because it's it's fascinating. Revelation has a message that I think for the church is so important. And what's unfortunate is that at this present time, we almost have no chance at fully understanding it. We live in 21st century America. Hopefully that's not news to anybody. We are free to worship God how we please, whatever God we choose. We have rights that protect us from a government official coming through this door and arresting us, harming us, or even murdering us. This is a privilege that we have in America and many nations around the world have. But many do not. The first Sunday of November was the National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Just a a one-time-a-year reminder that the church is not all free. Jesus in in the Gospels, he told us something very interesting that I think sometimes we forget when we get into a place of, of comfort. Jesus says that the world is going to hate you because the world first hated me. Do we know why the world hates Christ? The world hates Christ because Christ is in fact its king. Christ is in fact its one and only God. And yet, on earth today, there's somewhere around 7.5 billion. There's 7.5-ish billion people on earth, and every single one of us, every single one of us at some level thinks that we are God of something in our lives. Just so everybody knows, that stands in direct opposition to the entirety of Scripture. To everything that Christ stood for when he was on this earth. And in fact, to everything that Christ stood for when he suffered and died on the cross. The world hates Christ because Christ stands and says, I alone reign and rule. You do not. We could go back again. Genesis chapter 3. What what does Satan say? What does the serpent say to Eve? It won't kill you. It will make you like God. And what did we all do in response to that statement in our lives? We reach out and we grab and we say, yeah, that sounds right. We live in a time that has been unprecedented for its length of non-persecution. I don't think perhaps a smarter person would argue this point, but I don't think there's ever been a period of of, of church history where so many Christians have been so free from persecution of any kind. But you know what's interesting? That if we truly believe the Scriptures and we truly believe that the world will hate us because it first hates Christ, then we should know, not think, 
we should know that eventually that's going to stop. A lack of persecution. I think many of us who might be our observant and look at the news, we might already think it's coming. I personally think that persecution, real pain, suffering, death, violence is going to come to the church in America sooner to this point now than it is to the end of my life. Now, that's not a prophetic statement. That's just my own observations. I think persecution is going to come to this church. I think persecution is going to come to the church, the church that exists specifically in America because the world hates Jesus. And if, hopefully, we stand on that truth, it will hate us. Many, many people have claimed that America is a Christian nation. It's not. I'm sorry if you disagree with this statement. The First Amendment of the Constitution demands that America is not a Christian nation. We have a freedom of religion. It's written into the Constitution. It's, it's, defined, it's what the experiment was. Before America, there was no such thing as a non-religious, or non-religious state. Every nation, every state that existed was a religion first and then the state. America said, let's do something different. Let's make the state not a religion. So by definition, we are not a Christian nation. Yes, we were founded upon Christian morality. And for many, many years, Christians were the, the vast majority. And so therefore, we looked like a Christian nation. But I ask you one, one more question to prove my point. Is God the president? Is Christ the president of the United States? Even the most Christian of our leaders would argue that point. Eventually, we will experience persecution. Now, why does this matter? Ask that, that question. Why does this matter? Because, because unless and until we feel this weight of persecution, we will never understand revelation like it is meant to be understood. We can get close. We can, we can have an idea, but we will never feel revelation. And this is why more than other days and more than, more than other times when we look at Scripture, it is such a burden to me to say, I'm going to try to show you what it means for Christ to be king. Because I can't. Not until we truly fear somebody coming through those doors. I can say, imagine it all I want. You just can't. You can read books, you can watch videos, you can, under, you can understand it, but only to a point. John is the author of this, this letter, and that's what it is at its, at its core. It is a letter. Now, it's an apocalyptic, prophetic letter, and that's other stuff that comes a little bit later. But all we will see today is the letter form. John said he's, he's the author of this of this letter. Most people think this is the Apostle John. Some people think it's the Elder John. It doesn't necessarily matter. One of the reasons why they don't think it might, it's probably not the Apostle John, is that this is written somewhere in the early 90s, probably 90, 91. And John would have been older than expected. People have lived 
a long time before, and I think John the Apostle is probably the author. But again, it doesn't really matter. What matters is when it was written. Like I said, likely 90 or 91. Under the reign of Emperor Domitian, who in church history is the bringer of the second persecution. And the second persecution basically makes the first persecution under King Nero, or Emperor Nero, look like child's play. Nero was burning Christians at the stake to light his gardens. He, was, uh, he, he cast people out of the... He crucified many, many people. But Domitian had a different motive altogether. Nero, he burns Rome to the ground, or it's assumed that he burns Rome to the ground, and then he blames it on the Christians. Nero used his hatred of Christians and Jews to better himself. Domitian was a psychopath who killed Christians because he hated Christians. And why did he hate Christians? Because he hated Christians. He was violent. And he just put Christians to death. We don't have fancy stories of burning, at the, burning Christians at the stake in the, in the gardens, but Persecution weights the book of Revelation down. Because it's the only thing that truly makes us grasp this one very important question. Why are we still here? Now we live in a, in a relative state of comfort. We, we sit around our homes, we sit in this church and we go, Oh yeah, this is alright. Because for most of us, it is. It's okay to live our lives. It's okay to, it's okay to walk around and confess that you're a believer. It's okay. Nobody turns around and hauls off and clocks you. We don't fear by saying, I don't fear me standing up here and saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that somebody will eventually come to my home whenever I'm here at work and take my wife and kids and put them to death. I don't fear that. They did which changes the mentality of how we live our lives. Not as Christians, but how we live our lives at all. We go, okay, why are we still here then? Or probably more importantly, is this the right thing to be doing and believing? Well, Ryan, clearly if you're a believer, you're not going to question whether you're right under persecution. Aren't we? Don't you think that there would be just a moment of doubt, fear? Perhaps as we proclaim Christ and pretty soon my wife and my kids have been put to death, don't you think for even one second, don't you think I love my kids enough to go, maybe I was wrong? That's a pretty serious question. And it's a question that the book of Revelation answers. Is Christ truly reigning and ruling? It doesn't look like it. Again, maybe in our 21st century American minds, it kind of does. Seems like wickedness and evil have been in some sense corralled. But in the first century, the most powerful man on earth said, I want all Christians put to death. 
at all chances, at all possibilities. So while we can't fully understand it, we can try. We look at, we look at what John is, is saying here. He says, John to the seven churches, and this is who he's writing to. We're not going to dwell on that too much. He says, grace to you and peace. Grace, the gift freely given to us, undeserved of us, unwarranted, unmerited by our, our lives, the gift of Christ on the cross, the gift of salvation and peace. We don't get that, right? We're at peace. Yeah, we see on the news from time to time people who hate Christians. I'm not worried about them. John says, grace to you. Grace be yours. And peace. See, in the New Testament, we experience God through grace. We experience God through the, through the outpouring of His Son, Jesus, on our behalf. But in the Old Testament, we experience God in His drive for shalom, peace. The whole of the law is founded upon this idea of bringing peace, bringing comfort. Not fairness, not necessarily, but in some sense, fairness, balance. Grace and peace to you from he, from him who is and who was and who is to come. I love this. Zeus, right? You've heard of Zeus. He called himself he who is and he who was and he who is to come. And John, this is, my, this is one of my favorite things that the early church did. They said, you can say that all you want, but it ain't yours to say. Right? Christmas is a pagan holiday, and then the Christians, they went, no, it's not. Everything is God's. We're taking it back. John says, you can say that all you want, but he's not. Zeus isn't the one who is. He isn't the one who was. isn't the one who is to come. God is. And he alone. From the seven church or the seven spirits that are who are before the throne. This could be the Spirit of God, or this could be the seven angels that are later mentioned. I think it's probably something of both, because the angels are in a lot of ways representative of the work of the Spirit of God. We're not going to talk any more about that. And from Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Let me ask you a question. How many people, how many rulers on earth today would, would give Christ the credit for being their ultimate king? Either in word or in deed. Did you get anybody? And Jesus says, I am. Maybe we don't quite understand this because this is what the emperors did. Right, the emperors they said you can be kings of the, the region, <laughs> but you're not you're not the main guy. I'm it, right? Caesar said, huh, everything is under me. And everybody went, Okay. This is what Jesus says. He says, Look, I'm the faithful witness to God my father, I am the firstborn of the dead, meaning the firstborn to die and raise. And I am the ruler of kings on the earth. I am Christ. 
the king. It's a statement. This is a fact. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, sometimes we get caught up in our earthly lives. We think that the government is about earthly things. Jesus says, I am king. I am ruler. I am reigner. I bought you with my precious blood. I made you into my kingdom. See, the difference between God's kingdom and man's kingdom is man goes, this area is mine, and as much as, as, much as I can control it, it'll be mine. God says that's not how kingdoms work. In fact, kingdoms aren't made by borders. They're made by people. And God called his people out from amidst the nations of the world without the permission of those who were around him, without the permission of the rulers that are of the earth, but of his own accord, for his own purposes. He made us priests, proclaimers, stewards of God's message, To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go back to that question. What are we doing on this earth? Are we right? Are we wrong? Is He coming back? Again, we we have 2,000 years of, of church history that kind of kind of twists the way we think about the return of Jesus. See, in the first century, only about 60 years had passed. Right? The earliest believers, they were like, Jesus is coming back now. Then they started saying, soon. They're still saying soon in the first century. They're still going, wait a minute, Christ, isn't he? And as, as blow after blow hammers them down, they start to ask the question, Is, isn't he? Isn't he? Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe not. And Christ says, Behold, he is coming. He's coming with clouds and everyone will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will what? A wail. A cry. Because of him. See, this is what the weight of Revelation is really about. See, when persecution happens, it's very easy to be defeated. It's very easy to look at life situations and say, perhaps I was wrong. It's understandable at the least. But Christ confirms again and again in Scripture, and Christ has shown Himself to again and again be the God who reigns and rules, even from a distance, in part. He says, I will come. Not only will I come to get my people, but I will come and all will see. 
And those who follow Christ will rejoice. And those who have rejected him, who persecute him, who hate his church, and who have harmed his church, will cry on account of seeing him. Not just cry, not just be sad, but will mourn. Now again, this means very little to us. Because we don't understand true hatred. It almost seems a little crass to think that we would rejoice that other people who have persecuted us would be harmed because of their wickedness. Sometimes we can justify our sympathy for everybody else and we can say arrogantly, and by the way, extremely foolishly, that I am more merciful than God. No, you're not. Even so, John says. Yes, judgment will happen. And yes, there are times when we look at the judgment of God and we say, maybe he could have been. But isn't it God who alone has the right? Isn't it again us reaching out to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, I am going to be in control? Verse 8. I, I, wish, I wish there was some way to emphasize this more. But God speaks. God speaks and we're, we're clued into the magnitude of, of who this God is whenever he says the Lord Almighty. Now in the Old Testament when you saw, or not Lord Almighty, the Lord God, excuse me. In the Old Testament, when you saw Lord God, what that, what that really was is the, is the divine name of God followed by the general name God, Yahweh Elohim. It's very rarely used in the Old Testament, and it's only ever used in moments of extreme reverence to denote the fullness of who God is. And in its Greek form, we see it here. The fullness of God in the most and the, and the very most that we could possibly grasp his existence. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first letter and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It would be like him saying, I am the A and the Z. There's a figure of speech in the ancient world that said, I am everything. I am the completeness of all things. Not only am I the completeness of all things, but I, I am these things. I am the first and the last later on in the book. I am the first and the last. Who is and who was and who is to come. Right? John says it earlier on God's behalf that this guy is the is and was and is to come. Not Zeus. God now says it himself. I, I am, I was, and I am yet to be. This is reminiscent of what, it, what exactly it means for God to be named Yahweh. Yahweh in Hebrew means I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. God stands firmly on this one very important truth. That He alone is God and King. 
He alone is God and King, the Almighty. Again, this is a war term. I think it's used like four times in the New Testament. Extremely rarely. The book of Revelation is a book about the final victory of Christ. As we live our lives here on this earth, we ask ourselves again and again and again as we experience the pain and the turmoil and the toil of life, we ask ourselves, is God truly and ultimately in control? And God himself definitively says, yes. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is and He was and He is to come. He is the Almighty Victor. Amen? Christ is King. He rules and He reigns. He defeats death. He frees us from the bond of sin. He makes us his kingdom. He gives us our purpose. He reigns and rules. And we bow our knees to him because he is good. He is just. He is merciful bond measure. He is gracious. He is king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, Yahweh, you who were and who are and who are yet to be, Lord, we are humbled by your scope your majesty, your dominion, your power. Father, I pray that our hearts, feeble and small and finite as they are, would be able to comprehend in no small part your goodness, your power, your rule, and your reign. that we would proclaim together as a congregation as we will one day fully know it, that you are king. You are king of our lives and you are king of this earth. Lord, it's in your precious and holy and sovereign son's name, Jesus. Amen.